Hey everyone, welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Our topic of discussion today is Sir Winston Churchill, and I'm very excited to present to you my guest today, which is none other than Professor Andrew Roberts. Professor Roberts is an acclaimed British historian, journalist, and broadcaster who has given well-received broadcasts at the funerals of Diana, Princess of Wales, and Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, and the wedding of Prince Charles to the Duchess of Cornwall. He is a best-selling author and has written books on many topics of military history. His upcoming book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, is of particular interest to our conversation today, and I encourage you all to pick up a copy via Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. Professor Roberts, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much. It's an honor to be on. Winston Churchill is undoubtedly one of the most influential figures in the involvement of the Second World War. But my first question today is sort of has to do with the the making of Churchill. You know, what pre-World War II events defined his character, turning him into the, the great leader that he eventually came, perhaps occurrences during the First World War or even in his teenage years in his early military career? Well, he'd, of course, fought in five wars before the Second World War on four continents. So he had a uh, a deep involvement in war. He knew what it was about. He had um, uh, commanded men in battle personally. But he'd also, uh, in the First World War, been in charge of the Ministry of Munitions, which employed two and a half million people. And so he understood the organisational aspects of war as well. He, when he became uh, Prime Minister in May 1940, said that, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life has been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And in many ways, it was indeed. In terms of his rise to leadership, for those who aren't as familiar with Sir Winston Churchill, how did he really emerge as a leader during the Second World War and rise to prime ministership? Well, he had been in the um, British Parliament since 1899. So he'd already spent 41 years as a uh, politician. He had held most of the great offices of state, Home Secretary, um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, First Lord of the Admiralty, and so on. And so he was a very um, profoundly experienced politician. But at the same time, he'd actually been out of office for the previous t- uh, 10 years and had been warning from the sidelines, very often ignored, about the dangers of Adolf Hitler and the rise of the Nazis. So as well as actually having a great deal of experience in government, he also was not in any way affected, which I say infected, by the terrible mistakes of the 1930s governments over appeasement. So now what he's most famous for, perhaps, is his ability to rally an entire nation during the Blitz and particularly the Battle of Britain, uh, which were perhaps the darkest hours for Britain during the Second World War. So in your book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, what is it about this man that sets him apart from other leaders during this time, that he is able to rally his nation while Hitler and the Nazis were gaining much ground uh, during those early years of the war. Yes, he had this um, this certainty in victory, which came from a, a belief in his own destiny. And when I mentioned that quotation about, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, 
That's a very important aspect of Winston Churchill. Indeed, it's fundamental to understanding him. He truly believed that he had a destiny to um, to save London and, as he put it, and to save the country and to save the British Empire. And the way in which he acted that out gave him tremendous confidence and uh, and calmness during, as you say, what were the most perilous days of um, of British history. And so you see, as well as this uh, this experience that I was um, talking about. Uh, and indeed, a great deal of um, of personal physical courage that he had shown throughout his life, uh, particularly as a soldier. Um, also, the idea that he knew that he was going to be able to see Britain through these uh, these terrible dark days. And and how was he able to do that? Was it specific military actions? Was it his political decisions? Was it his broadcasts? Um. His uh, his broadcasts were tremendously important in uh, in in keeping morale high during the Second World War. He had a wonderful um, gift for the English language. Even now, you can listen to his broadcasts and uh, and find them tremendously moving. And that's sort of seventy five years later. But um, but also on top of that, he had a strategic sense. He had uh, learnt strategy at. Uh, at Sandhurst, but then, of course, had practiced it um, pretty much ever since. And so he, uh, he, he thought he knew the right way, along with the chiefs of staff, to, um, to win the Second World War. And as you mentioned, also, his, uh, his political decisions were important. The way he uh, set up a national government right at the very beginning and brought all the parties in Parliament together, the way he had a um, small war cabinet which he dominated, but was no dictator, um, the way in which he hired and fired people and put the best people in the right posts. I mean, these were all intensely political decisions. And again, they, were, they came from the experience of the previous four decades of his political life. Could it be said that Churchill was perhaps as prime minister, a brilliant military commander in the coordination of British forces throughout the Second World War? I think so, yes. He, he certainly understood the limitations that Britain faced. Uh, we were not a uh, rich country. We were teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, actually, in the uh, fall of 1940. And so he knew he had to husband the resources of the British Empire, especially the financial resources, very carefully. Um, especially in the period, of course, before the United States entered the war in December 1941. Um, so that was one aspect of his uh, of his leadership. Another, of course, was that all throughout his life, he had been very much a supporter of and uh, indeed a lover of the British Empire. And the help that the British Empire, especially Canada, Australia and New Zealand and India, gave um, to Britain in those uh, in those dark days was absolutely Essential and the way in which he managed to bring all of those together too was something that uh, was a um, important aspect of his uh, of his strategic leadership. Mm, indeed. Now, one of the things that has been, unfortunately, there's been sort of this um, surgence of hatred of Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, many people are depicting him not as a hero, but perhaps one of the greatest villains of history. Now, in my personal opinion, most of these arguments are very ahistorical, but perhaps could you address some of the misconceptions or 
just myths that people have bought into about Churchill and why they are simply not true. And perhaps some of them are true. No, I don't think that any of them are true. But I think that they say a lot more about modern concepts of identity politics than they do about the uh, early 19th, sorry, the late 19th century in which he was born. Um, they're based very much on his belief in um, racial hierarchies, the neo-Darwinian theory that um, that non-white races were um, were not just separate, but actually less advanced than white races, which of course we know to be obscene and uh, and ludicrous. You have to remember that Charles Darwin was still alive when Churchill was at school, and that people believe that to be a scientific fact, however absurd that might seem today. And so what they do is to place this um, this uh, uh, belief in uh, neo-Darwinism uh, into an overall uh, theory of Churchill, which makes him out to be a, a, a vicious racist on the base, on the rather like Adolf Hitler uh, was a vicious racist, and um, and so they ascribe every bad thing that um, happened during the British Empire to Winston Churchill, even though very often, such as with the Amritsar massacre of nineteen nineteen, he was actually uh, virulently opposed to it and denounced the person responsible for it and said that it was a, a heinous act of. Uh, of terrorism, so all in all, it was something that um, uh, that is essentially ahistorical. What do you think are some of Churchill's greatest moments uh, during his life? The the moments that he is really able to shine at his brightest and his leadership is at its best. I think that um, the moment at the beginning of the. Great War, the First World War, when he was First Lord of the Admiralty, and he made sure that the Grand Fleet, the British Royal Navy, um, major fleet, was ready for action uh, as soon as that war broke out. So there was no danger of the German High Seas Fleet um, attacking and uh, and uh, winning an early victory in that war, which of course um, could have happened had the Royal Navy been. Uh, Less prepared. That's the first one. I think. Then, um, at the time of the Munich crisis on the fifth of October, nineteen thirty-eight, the speech that he gave in the House of Commons, in which he denounced uh, Neville Chamberlain's agreement with Adolf Hitler to um, dismember uh, Czechoslovakia and allow the Sudetenland, the Germans peaking parts of Czechoslovakia, to to go into the Reich, that was a um, another one of the great uh, moments of his uh, of his life. Then, of course, during the actual Second World War itself, the moment in uh, May 1940 when he prevented the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, from entering into peace negotiations with Hitler, even though Hitler had very clearly won the uh, war in the West at that time, I think is tremendously important. And then there are a whole series during the war itself at the time of the um, German invasion of Russia, uh, at the time that um, the Japanese attacked America at Pearl Harbor in 1942 when he persuaded the Americans of the Mediterranean strategy and then the successes of that Mediterranean strategy, especially in North Africa and Sicily. And then um, you see him uh, in an almost almost equally great role at the time of uh, the D-Day landings. And 
and also at um, the victory, ultimate victory in uh, in Europe. So these are these are moments really that will live forever um, as long as as uh, anyone is interested in uh, in freedom, certainly, and um, so long as the English speaking peoples survive, I think uh, all of those moments will be ones where we thank our lucky stars that we had somebody like Winston Churchill um, there at the time. Now I'm curious, how did the other leaders of the major nations during the Second World War view Churchill? And how did the British public view Churchill? They, they admired his leadership, but of course they had very different views about him um, vis-a-vis their own countries. Stalin uh, certainly never trusted Churchill. He should have, actually. Churchill wasn't attempting to pull any uh, tricks on Stalin, but Stalin was a deeply paranoid individual who uh, always was certain that, um, in his words, my pocket is about to be picked uh, by um, by Churchill and uh, and Roosevelt. President Roosevelt initially started off rather um, rather doubtful about Churchill. He believed that he was a, possibly a drunk, and um, and therefore he sent over his friend Harry Hopkins to find out whether Churchill was a drunk and and whether or not Churchill had um, had got his uh, finger on the pulse. And when Harry Hopkins very soon established that actually Churchill was a magnificent leader and certainly not an alcoholic, um, that led um, uh, Roosevelt to be able to exhale um, a good deal. And, uh, and of course, they then made great friends uh, together when, uh, when Churchill came over to visit Roosevelt in the White House in December 1941. One of the sort of claims and, you know, mythological accusations that I've heard one make is that uh, perhaps Winston Churchill had some knowledge about the, I should say, before the bombings of Pearl Harbor that he did not warn the United States because he was um, very keen on bringing the United States into the Second World War uh, because, in his opinion, they were needed to defeat the Nazis. Could you address this claim? Um, it's in, entirely untrue. It's one of the very many myths about Winston Churchill. There are there are dozens of them, scores of them. Um, and uh, as an important person in the 20th century, of course, you'd expect somebody to um, to have a lot of myths um, invented about them. And this is one of the more vicious ones. Um, the very fact is that if the um, if Ch- if Churchill had known about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, he would have warned Roosevelt about it. It didn't take the actual attack to um, to be a casus belli. If the Japanese were sending a huge fleet towards uh, Pearl Harbor, it wouldn't have needed the actual attack on Pearl Harbor to have um, to have brought the Americans into the war. So um, the idea that he would also have uh, stood by and allowed three thousand Americans to be killed unnecessarily is a disgraceful slur. On the name of a very great man, a um, lover of America, a gentleman, and um, somebody who uh, who would never for a moment have put up with that kind of thing. Also, if you look at the evidence um, that is presented for this uh, incredibly flimsy theory, it doesn't stand up for a moment. So in the process of writing your book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, what sort of research have you spent your time conducting uh, that you have found to be just absolutely inspiring and fascinating about Churchill? Well, I've been writing about Winston Churchill now for 30 years. My first book 
um, which I started um, researching in 1988, was a biography of Winston Churchill's first foreign secretary, Lord Halifax. And so I've been, um, and since then, I've reviewed many hundreds of books on Churchill. I've written five books with Churchill in the title or the subtitle. So um, I'm very conversant, really, with the um, with the works of Winston Churchill. He himself spoke 5.2 million words, and he wrote 6.1 million, more than Dickens and uh, and Shakespeare combined. And so you have a enormous body of work, as well as a great amount of new sources, sources that have come out in the last 10 years, including 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at the Churchill College in, in uh, Churchill College, Cambridge, which um, is a wonderful archive and one that now has all these extra papers that have been deposited since the last major life of Churchill, which means that in my on pretty much every page of my book, there's something um, that appears that has never appeared in a biography of Churchill before. And so there's this great cornucopia of new sources, including the um, very major one that Her Majesty the Queen asked me, or allowed me, should I say, to be the first Churchill biographer to work on her father, King George VI's diaries. And um, and this has been a superb form, a uh, new source, owing to the fact that the King and Churchill had lunch together every Tuesday during the Second World War, and the King trusted the um, uh, his Prime Minister, and certainly Churchill trusted the King. He told him about um, secrets such as the ultra-secret, the nuclear secrets. He told him who he was going to be hiring and firing, and uh, uh, he told him about attacks that were going to be taking place. And so they um, they created a very strong bond, unfortunately. The king, after each of these meetings, sat down and uh, wrote down everything Churchill said. So we have a new insight into Churchill's hopes and fears and aperçus and gags and the rest. And uh, there are many other such sources. Um, the uh, verbatim accounts of the cabinet war records, the um, diaries of uh, Ivan Maisky, the Soviet ambassador, many other sources such as that. So. Actually, it's um, the surprising thing for me, really, was quite how much new there is to say about Churchill, considering that there are already 1,009 biographies of him. Now, my last question to you is this, and it, again, has to do with the, the Second World War, but at the beginning of uh, World War II and even pre-1939, the British leadership, whether it be the prime minister at the time or uh, Edward VIII, uh, of Windsor, uh, they seem to be taking the sort of um, incompetent or some might even say pacifist approaches to dealing with Hitler's rise to power and his invasions and um, the subsequent rise of the Nazis. But what was different about Churchill? Why was he sort of the the lone wolf, the, the only one to um, take this sort of attitude with Hitler? I think it, it stems from three things that uh, allowed him to to be really the, the not only the most important but actually virtually the only uh, major Tory politician to um, uh, to to warn against the Nazis. The first was his philosemitism. He liked Jews. He'd grown up with Jews. Um, he had gone on holiday with Jews. His father liked Jews. This is not something that can be taken 
um, for granted in the upper classes of uh, late Victorian England, most of which, frankly, were anti-Semitic. And so to um, be a, a Zionist like he was, he was, uh, of course, a supporter of the Balfour Declaration in November 1917, and um, somebody who thought that the Jews gave the world its uh, and civilization its ethics, were, it gave him really an early warning system when it came to Hitler and the Nazis that an awful lot of other politicians of the day didn't have. The second thing is his um, love of and understanding of history. He was able to put Hitler in the long continuum of um, people who had attempted to hegemonize Europe. And uh, his historical knowledge and his historical writings, therefore, allowed him to see Hitler as the latest manifestation of a phenomenon that had gone back many centuries. So um, Philip II of Spain, of course, at the time of the Spanish Armada, um, Louis XIV, who his own great ancestor, John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, had uh, defeated in the uh, Wars of Spanish Succession, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, and the Kaiser. And he, in, he fitted Hitler very well into, um, into the latest manifestation of this. And the third and last way in which he spotted how this was different was that he had a sense of the fanaticism of uh, his enemies, which an awful lot of the other politicians of the 1930s, such as Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain, who were prime ministers during that, uh, that decade, did not have. They hadn't come up against fanaticism in their lives, whereas Churchill had had one of his best friends sliced to pieces on a stretcher in the northwest frontier when he was a he was a um, um, young subaltern, and he had um, killed four dervishes at the time of the um, great charge at the Battle of Omdurman, the last great cavalry charge of the British Empire in eighteen ninety eight. In these cases, of course, it was um, Islamic uh, fundamentalist fanaticism, but he was able to see the Nazis as not as not being unlike that. And uh, and this also, therefore, allowed him to uh, have an insight into what Hitler was truly like, which was denied an awful lot of his uh, his contemporaries. How fascinating. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show, uh, Professor Roberts. I encourage you all listening to go purchase a copy of Churchill Walking with Destiny. It is a splendid book, and I highly, highly recommend it. But Professor Roberts, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Noah. It's been a delight. Thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us right here again next week.